after an introduction like that, even I'm excited to hear <laughs> about what I'm going to say. Uh, really um, appreciate and respect and love Apologia, and that just grows year by year. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for your kind invitation. Uh, I am uh, blessed to be accompanied by my dear wife, Sharon, of 40 years this past August. Glad she's here. Thank you. Go thou and do likewise. Get married and stay married a very long time. Uh, Great to see uh, so many new faces coming back here to FormCon. And uh, and I was about to say old faces, but that's not quite the idea that I was wanting to convey. So great to see you all. So my talks tend to start as Calvinistic lectures and end as charismatic sermons. (laughs) So you might want to hold on. (laughs) Christian culture and biblical law are two themes high on the agenda of Christians committed to a biblical worldview. Just for a show of hands, how many of you here are sort of committed to a biblical worldview? Just a smattering, okay, thank you. But these themes are almost never considered in tandem or in any synthetic way. We tend to consider Christian culture and also consider biblical law, but not how they relate to one another. And we certainly don't ponder the chance that ultimately one is impossible without the other. Let's consider Christian culture first. Christian culture has been the chief interest of the Roman Catholic Church. There's good reason for this. Uh, Medieval Roman Catholicism shaped Western society largely, and it was assumed society was largely, though never exclusively, Christian. When you mention the expression Christian culture to Roman Catholics, they dream up lovely, enchanted, medieval, almost elvish notions. (laughs) To many Roman Catholics, it was precisely Protestantism and its alleged divisiveness that destroyed their unity, the unity of Christian culture. Now, the actual explanation is much more complicated, but that's a common Roman Catholic understanding. Medieval Christian culture, to the extent that it was Christian, reflected what the Reformational philosopher Hermann Duyavir termed the nature grace motif or motive. What does that mean? A nature is God's created world and it stands under God's providence. Grace, however, is God's redemptive action in Jesus Christ and it's concentrated in the church. Their church, of course. Creation itself, nature, isn't directly governed by Jesus Christ's redemptive work or the Bible. It's an area of common non-religious providence. In nature, philosophical arguments everybody can agree on rule. There's a neutrality there. So if you have the right philosophy, you can basically understand life. Most Roman Catholic thinkers will follow Thomas Aquinas on this score as Uh, And one of his burdens was to adapt Aristotle's philosophy to the church. This meant that everything outside the church was an area of potential intellectual neutrality. Christians could agree with non-Christians because they could agree on the same basic philosophy governing life outside the church, since it wasn't distinctly Christian. Grace, on the other hand, is concentrated in and limited 
to the church. Man cannot gain salvation in nature, though he can know many things truly. But he can gain salvation only in the church, notably the vast, complex, sacramental system of the Roman church. You can live your life outside the church quite well, fine and dandy, without Jesus Christ in the Bible. But if you want eternal life, you need the priesthood, seven sacraments, the Pope. Now, what does this have to do with Christian culture? Simply this. In the medieval Roman Catholic conception, culture can only be indirectly Christian. It's Christian to the extent that it's subordinate to the grace of the church. This is why medieval Roman Catholicism wanted to get kings and other political rulers under church authority. There's no distinctively biblical politics, for example, but if you get the politicians into and submitted to the church, the culture will be indirectly influenced by the church. The sacramental system of the church is the medium of grace. What happens in the church influences all of society. So if you can just get the church right, all culture will be right eventually because the church is God's central medium for influencing culture. We might say the church sacramentalizes culture. Some of them will actually talk that way. In essence, this means that medieval culture wasn't so much Christian culture as it was ecclesiastical culture. This is what most Roman Catholics understand when they speak of Christian culture. Ecclesiastical culture. Now, if Roman Catholics hold the corner on the Christian culture market, Calvinists are most interested in biblical law. And that shouldn't surprise us. John Calvin himself was a lawyer before he was a Calvinist. (laughs) Calvinists of all theological persuasions have been most committed to the judicial or legal dimension of the faith. Calvinists understand the importance of law in God's scheme, and particularly biblical law. That's one reason they stress justification. They see it rightly as an exclusively judicial act and as not including sanctification, which is the Roman Catholic idea, which is they're basically fused. Biblical law is not the only law Calvinists have been interested in, however. Many of them picked up from Roman Catholics the idea of natural law. said, Andrew, are you going to be like slamming natural law? Yeah, I guess I am. (laughs) By natural law, I mean God's law derived from an inspection of and reflection on nature, intentionally excluding Jesus Christ and the Bible. Natural law is the ethical component of natural theology. This is the idea that we can come to an understanding of the world without any reference to the Bible or Jesus Christ. Now, this notion is fatally defective. God didn't invite Adam and Eve to look around at creation and within their own mind and conscience to determine how they were to live. He spoke his word to them. We call this propositional revelation in sentences. I mean, like actual sentences, like I'm using now. Not my language. God didn't speak English. Even before the fall, God's intent wasn't for man to derive knowledge of law from creation without a more fundamental reliance on God's language, propositional revelation. Now, it was the ancient pagans who first developed the idea of natural law. Now, their goal in this was to keep the chaos of the world at bay by positing a law within the rational, ethical universe that man's mind could grasp. 
Thomas Aquinas and the Roman Catholic Church picked up this idea and gave it a Christian hue, conformed it to Christianity as best they could. Believers and unbelievers alike can understand God's law in creation, general revelation, without special aid. But if they want salvation truth, they need the supernatural, the special revelation of Jesus and the Bible dispensed in the church. Both Roman Catholics and many Protestants hold this idea. It relieves them of the responsibility of appealing these days to the Bible when challenging secularists about law and society. Makes the path easier for them as apologists, they think. They're trying to get rid of the scandal of quoting the Bible to people who scoff at its authority. They can claim that they appeal to reason and not faith. All people of goodwill should agree with us if they really can be convinced rationally. Now, there certainly is a valid uh, dimension to the motive behind natural law. The Bible certainly teaches natural or creational revelation. In creation, God reveals himself everywhere. People can have a sense of the majesty of God and a little of what God requires of us by looking at creation. But the Bible, uh, the problem is that the Bible nowhere assumes that creational law, creational revelation can be cut off from biblical law or the entire Bible. Had you told the apostle Paul that he could speak only about creation and never about the Bible or Jesus Christ, he would have looked at you as though you ate live animals. Creation the Bible, and Jesus Christ are three inextricable strands of God's revelation to man. And you can't rip them apart. The Calvinists, therefore, have had a love-hate relationship with natural law. I'm, I'm on the hate side of that. But the most consistent Calvinists have stressed biblical law, in my view. The Puritans often, not always did, and this occupation with biblical law as the governing ethic of life comes right down to many contemporary uh, conservative Calvinists like um, Carl F. H. Henry, Gordon Clark, John Frame, Greg Bonson. No matter how they might have disagreed in theory or in application, all agree that biblical law should govern not just the individual Christian life, but all of society, however specifically defined and applied. This, by the way, is the great modern chasm in the church as it relates to God's law. Okay? It's not all the alleged fire-breathing, bomb-throwing theonomists who want to stone homosexuals and burn witches on the one side, and everybody who believes the church should stay out of politics on the other side. That's a false binary. It's those who affirm the authority of the Bible in all of life, including politics, on one side, and those who don't affirm the authority of the Bible in all of life on the other. That's the actual binary. I wish our opponents and even some of our friends understood this. But the fact is that Christian culture and biblical law are both irreplaceable aspects of a Christian worldview. It's a rarely recognized but serious fault that Christian culture and biblical law are almost never understood as a synthesis of a society under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That synthesis can be understood, I think, in two propositions. First, biblical law presupposes Christian culture. Second, Christian culture must inevitably lead to biblical law. I'm going to address those briefly in sequence. 
All biblical Christians are painfully aware of the radical shift in political law from creational and Christian on the one hand to secular and pagan. Henry Van Til once famously said, law is a reflection of culture and culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. Yes, you may write that down. Almost all states today permit no-fault divorce. The Supreme Court has made it impossible to legislate against same-sex marriage. There is actually no such thing, but you know what I'm talking about. We can thank God Roe was overturned, but that decision didn't forbid a single abortion. Laws of taxation, federal, state, and local, are largely legalized theft mechanisms. All of you who didn't attend college will likely be forced to pay the tuition of many who refused or failed to pay. In Canada, a pastor can go to jail if he recommends detransitioning for transsexuals, so-called. Pastors in Canada did, in fact, go to jail for resisting laws forbidding churches to meet during the COVID drama. Clearly, the law base of North America is not what it once was. In this climate of legal apostasy, our first inclination is to work to pass legislation to counter the pervasive depravity. We all know, at least intuitively, that law in any society should reflect God's justice. Just another word for righteousness, expressed where? In his word. Now, the pietists and evangelicals often would tend to agree vaguely, but they declare or imply we don't really need to worry about the law, civil law. Let's just get folks converted uh, and in the church and living for the Lord and the wider society and law can take care of itself. Get the church right and culture will be right. Well, apparently not. Times of increased conversions aren't necess- haven't necessarily been times of increased biblical law and politics. Adherence to biblical law and society is not a natural result of evangelism and church growth. Think about that. Implementing and reviving biblical law must be an intentional Christian act. It doesn't happen merely as a consequence of something else, even a reformed and revived church. Moreover, law always has, as Jeffrey Ventrella likes to say, a pedagogical function in society. Law is simply a reflection of culture. We'll get to that more in the next point. But law helps shape culture. Laws that forbid the criminalization of abortion incentivize treating preborn children as disposable fetuses. Laws codifying homosexual marriage don't simply expand the definition of the family, they undermine the family. Laws equalizing incomes don't chiefly get more resources to the poor. More significantly, they teach all citizens that work isn't necessary for physical sustenance. This is why the late Angelo Cotavilla once pointed out that the great problem with socialism isn't the impact it has on economics, but the impact it has on the character of citizens. It creates lazy, irresponsible, and instant gratification people. So recovering law, biblical law, is a noble and necessary objective. But, and this is my main point, this objective can never be decontextualized. Biblical law doesn't happen in a social vacuum. We must squarely face a transcendental question, that is the conditions under which question. What are the conditions under which a society governed by biblical law is possible? Consider societies in the past that have been partly or largely governed by biblical law. 
Think of Calvin's Geneva, Cromwellian England, Puritan New England. They were imperfect societies, as all human societies are, but they were largely shaped by biblical law. But these societies were possible because they were Christian societies, <laughs> a Christian culture. The fear of God pervaded society, and it even influenced unbelievers. Morality was considered an absolute and not relative or situational. Nobody in Calvin's Geneva said, it's okay if you want to follow the Bible, but I want to follow my heart. Everybody gets to decide. Nobody in Puritan New England argued that we all have our own private truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. It's not just that these beliefs that characterize our postmodern world radically conflict with, uh, conflict with biblical law. They radically conflict with the kind of society governed by biblical law. In other words, if you observe a society in which these postmodern attitudes prevail, you're looking at a society that can't be governed by biblical law. The right kind of society comes first. When a society gives up hope in the sovereignty of the triune God, of the lordship of Christ in all areas of life and thought, and not just private or churchly matters, biblical law is simply impossible. Law shapes culture, but culture precedes law. Politics is downstream from culture. Now this is why, for example, Obergefell was an almost foregone conclusion. The battle, the battle for same-sex marriage wasn't won with the 2015 Supreme Court decision no, indeed. It was one on living room TV sets and Hollywood movies and youth magazines from years ago and more recently youth websites for the previous 30 years or so. For decades, homosexuality has been routinized. The inevitable gay character was always wise and witty, while the most vocal anti-gay character was an undereducated religious nutcase. The cultural battle was won long before the judicial battle. Obergefell was simply the legal codification of a previous cultural conquest. Great Mark Stein quote here. One guy out of Canada that's halfway decent. Joe Boot is the other one. He's actually British, but has been in Canada. Most of the big profound changes in Western society, gay marriage, the rise of Islam, and so forth, bypass the political process entirely to the point where politicians are nervous of even raising the subject. Mm -hmm. Ask the most conservative Republicans what they believe publicly about same-sex marriage. Ask them and see if they'll give you a straight answer. See how upset I am about that, but to knock the microphone. Continue with the citation. If you let liberalism become the default societal setting on the 364 days of the year, there's no election being held. What happens on election day is going to be pretty unimportant. So if you're not playing on the big cultural battlefields, you're going to lose. This man understands. Therefore, if we want a society to return to biblical law, we must work to restore Christian culture because Christian culture is a necessary condition under which biblical law is possible. 
For example, Christian, example, Christians must work to create distinctly uh, aesthetically appealing, substantively superior novels and movies and music and TV shows and so on from a biblical worldview that can go toe-to-toe in every way with the pervasive secular alternatives. I'm glad some of you have started to do that. We must both recapture major cultural fulcrums like the foundations and media and journalism and universities and news outlets where possible and where impossible create alternatives. This is not an either-or, but a both-and strategy. Christians must, again, learn to think Christianly. That's Dr. Boots' nomenclature. Think Christianly about all matters. Not just child-rearing and Sunday worship and prayer and Bible reading, necessary, necessary though they are, but also about science and politics and art and technology and architecture and philosophy and history and selling automobiles and writing code. Christian culture is impossible unless a significant number of people can learn or relearn to think Christianly. Christian culture, I repeat, is a necessary condition under which biblical law and society is possible, and there will be no revival of biblical law without it. Second, Christian culture must inevitably lead to biblical law. It should go without saying that Christian culture must be Christian in every aspect of society. But this truism is far from universally recognized among Christians. They've been taught that certain aspects of life should be Christian, and certain aspects should not necessarily be Christian. For example, we should read our Bibles and our families and our families, and uh, should hear the gospel preached at church, but our public schools, our public schools. Ever hear Christians talk that way? I hear them, our public schools. So, well, they're not mine. Or maybe yours, but they're not mine. Our public schools should be religiously neutral. Yet religious neutrality is a myth. Our hearts are either turned toward the creator God or away from him. All who aren't with Christ are against him. Every assertion of neutrality is actually an act of rebellion under the guise of disinterested passivity. Public schools are not neutral. They're profoundly religious. That religion is secularism and or neo-paganism. No other area of society is neutral either, and certainly not law. Devout Christians, of all people, should usually recognize this fact. Think for a moment of the so-called Great Commission. It's often interpreted as going into all the world preaching the gospel to individuals, winning souls, and making a few disciples. But that's actually not how Matthew 28 literally reads. The text actually means disciple the nations. Not merely individuals, but nations themselves must become disciples. The gospel is not merely a message of individual conversion, though it certainly is that. The gospel is the good news of the reigning king who is extending his kingdom in the earth. The gospel is the message that all rebels, and that means all of us, must bow to the king, trusting in him alone, swearing allegiance to him. Baptism is the mark of the covenant, visibly subordinating us to his authority. We're then taught to observe everything that the king tells us in his word. The one who died a substitutionary death and rose in his body, ascended to heaven to assume his heavenly throne, and he's ruling today. 
We are the king's emissaries to declare the good news of the kingdom. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. And that's what the Great Commission's all about. This kingly gospel and the culture it produces are not recognized by most Christians. Let's take this quote by David Van Drunen of Westminster Seminary, California. He states it very explicitly, though I disagree with him profoundly, I appreciate his honesty in expressing his view. The only Christian culture, in the profoundest sense of the term, the only Christian culture, he says, is found in the ministry and fellowship of true churches of Christ operating according to the teaching of Scripture alone. Christians, we pray, he writes, will have wholesome influence in the various cultures within which they live and move, but the purpose of Christianity is not to transform cultures and to build enduring civilizations. Christian culture is ecclesiastical culture. And David sounds like a nice, good little Roman Catholic theologian in that quote. This view is actually a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ in all areas of life. It's part and parcel of the so-called two-kingdom theory, according to which Jesus is Lord, but he doesn't really exercise his lordship as king over all of life by his gospel and word. Jesus is king of the church, but he's basically left everything outside the church basically to its own devices, natural law, neutral understanding, and so on. To be quite specific then, Dr. Van Drunen doesn't believe in Christian culture. He believes in the Christian family, to his credit, and he believes in the Christian church, to his credit. But Christianity, according to him, was never designed to pervade and dominate the culture. Like Van Drunen, most Christians are committed, at least theoretically, to world evangelization, right? They want to see a multitude of lost sinners converted. That's a noble desire. I hope you want that. We should all be wanting that. But world evangelization necessitates world Christianization. It's remarkable how myopic they are on this point. If lots of people are converted, those people's lives will gradually be changed by the power of the Spirit. But those lives won't be changed only in the so-called private matters, the family and the church. Their work should be changed, their voting habits should be changed, their beliefs about and practice of the arts and architecture and education and technology and music and science should be changed also. In other words, they should be Christians in all areas of life, including in civil law, though that's not the main part of life. You can't logically say you want the world evangelized, but that you don't want it Christianized. And if you want it Christianized, it must be Christianized everywhere and in every sphere. And one vital sphere, one sphere among many, is law. That's why Christian culture must inevitably lead to biblical law. Just as culture is religion externalized, so law is the regulatory manifestation of a culture. If you want to know what kind of culture you're living in, examine its law. Let's do that. We live in a time in which abortion is routine. Homosexuals get marriage certificates. Couples divorce for almost any reason or no reason at all. Money is confiscated from hardworking citizens and doled out to lazy, nonproductive citizens. These are all clues that we're not living in a Christian culture. That's a newsflash. We're living in a secular and neo-pagan culture. Law is a chief criterion for the kind of culture you're living in. Obviously, ours is no longer a Christian culture. 
The philosophy of almost every law school in North America is blatantly contra-Christian. That philosophy is, for example, sociological law or utilitarian law or pragmatic law. The source of law is considered to be the majority of a population or abstract ideas of social justice or what a few elected judges declare it is. There is no longer a law above the law. There's no transcendent law to which human, positive human laws must conform. This, of course, is a recipe for tyranny. As the West has lost its Christian law base, it has degenerated into tyranny. In Marxist states, law is simply an instrument of politics. Law is what the state says it is. The Communist Party decides what's best for their ideological agenda, and they engineer law to enforce their secular, socialistic, utopian viewpoint. No judge, no citizen can say, this law is contrary to God. It's contrary to his moral order, contrary to his word. Well, there's no God, and therefore there's no appeal beyond history. Where there's no God, the state can torture Christians, seize your property, and throw you into a concentration camp. It can exterminate Jews, permit the murder of unborn babies, permit weddings for homosexuals, the mutilation of teenagers' sexual organs, and the great crusade for transgender rights. If there is no transcendent divine law, anything is possible. To this, Christian culture and its biblical law declare unequivocally, anything is not possible. God decides what is possible and permissible. By, big, by, big, by biblical law, I mean the creational norms in Genesis, the Mosaic law, Torah or Torah, and New Covenant law. All of them consist of God's will for mankind. Now, it's important to understand this. Uh, most of God's law is not civil law. All to the contrary. There are comparatively few civil laws in the Bible. The secular legal code in Western cultures is bloated with regulations. Most of us break several laws every day without knowing it. Illegality is everywhere. By contrast, the Bible criminalizes very few sins. Murder and kidnapping and rape and theft are crimes. But covetousness and uh, envy and gossip and fornication and divisiveness and even hatred are not crimes. The civil magistrate is authorized to suppress only what the Bible commands it suppress. Romans 13 declares the civil magistrate is called to punish the evil and reward the righteous. He rewards the righteous by punishing the evil. The goal of the civil magistrate or state is never to inculcate virtue, even Christian virtue. We have a name for regimes whose goal is to instill virtue. They're called totalitarian dictatorships. <laughs> Lenin and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot wanted to remake their citizens, create them, make them more virtuous, less self-centered, more politics-loving. In the Bible, this is not the job of the state. Because the state is the only divinely established institution of coercion, it must be severely chained. The state can throw you in jail and kill you, legitimately, according to the Bible. Therefore, the scope of its authority must be severely limited. In the Bible, it is severely limited. Now, on this point, many of our secular opponents and even some of our Christian friends greatly misunderstand us. When they hear us talk about Christian culture and the dominion mandate, 
uh, including implying the, applying the faith in politics, they assume we're envisioning some sort of revolutionary Christian takeover. That's what they're after. After which we'll sort of impose Christianity. This is dead wrong. Christianity isn't imposed, it's embraced. The Bible teaches irresistible grace, but not poetic, uh, 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 politically coerced grace. The gospel is a regal message, but we as the king's emissaries don't impose it. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts for sinners to accept it. And even unbelievers can accept the authority of God's moral law externally when they recognize its benefits to society. It's important to remember that the Mosaic law in particular is designed for a holy covenanted society. Jehovah didn't communicate his law in Exodus 20 before entering into covenant with his people outlined in Exodus 19. Read those. Don't go first to Exodus 20. Read Exodus 19 first. Mosaic law is covenant law, and it cannot be adopted as a body except by covenant people. So this refutes the accusation by secularists and even some pietistic Christians that we dominionists are attempting to capture politics to impose Mosaic law on everybody. That's not only an impossibility, it's also wrong. They assume that because their way to change society is by capturing politics and imposing their will, this must be our way. But our way is not their way. We believe society is changed by the preaching of the gospel under the power of the Spirit and the gradual submission of citizens to Christ the King. That's our way. But this doesn't mean God's moral law doesn't bind all nations. It does. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't attempt to pass and enact legislation that reflects biblical law. We should. We should work to pass legislation protecting the life of all preborn children, protecting the integrity of marriage, guaranteeing private property. Let me put this another way. The fact that the old covenant has been abolished doesn't mean that God's moral law has been abolished. The old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant, but biblical law hasn't been replaced by some alleged higher, more ethereal, and Christ-like law. Christ himself said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This includes the civil aspects of the Mosaic law relatively few though they may be. And this is what Christians almost universally believed until well into the 19th century. And I don't just mean Calvinists. And I don't just mean only into the 19th century. Listen to these words from a famous American in 1951. The fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the Mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. These are the words from that fire-breathing, fanatical, right-wing theonomist, Harry S. Truman, <laughs> Democratic President of the United States. When we argue for and work toward biblical law, not just in the individual life, but also in the family and the church, even in the state, therefore, we're proposing nothing unprecedented, nothing revolutionary. In fact, we're simply calling for a return to one vital foundation of Western civilization and the United States in particular. God has blessed the United States and Northern Europe also, partly because it has been committed, not always consistently, but committed to biblical law. 
as we have abandoned biblical law, God has slowly abandoned us. By and large, the church over the last century and a half has failed to counter the lawlessness of our age. Think only of this startling fact. On Easter 2020, almost every church in Christendom was empty due to the almost global COVID lockdown orders. Think of that for a moment. What the ancient Roman Empire could not accomplish, what a hostile Islam could never pull off, what communist regimes couldn't do, a massive statist utopia was able to accomplish essentially padlocking the church doors at Easter. Unfortunately, many churches were willing collaborators in their own demise. They dug their own graves. And then think about the response to the tragic killing of George Floyd and the resurgent Black Lives Matter. Churches all over North America called for reparations and joined the chorus against white supremacy. In other words, they sang the tune of cultural Marxism often singing it in a highly pious Christian key. And then, of course, they capitulated before the erotic regime. Even many alleged conservative evangelicals have made their peace with same-sex marriage, so-called, or at least in the PCA, same-sex attraction. Am I allowed to criticize the PCA here? Oh, dear, I'm sorry. Same-sex attraction. This is another name for same-sex lust. But that description is too indelicate for pious evangelicals. Why the nearly wholesale failure and more recent collapse? Several reasons come to mind. But perhaps the most prominent is the church's longtime devotion to a two-tiered view of reality. It creates what Stephen Perks calls a private devotional hobby by individual Christians, and it transforms the church into an out-of-the-way mystery cult by our Christian leaders. Both contribute to a two-tiered version of Christianity. Think of the double-decker tour buses in London. Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. I think most of them are red. Christians move Christianity into the upper deck of the church and theology. On the lower deck of the bus, they leave the rest of life as permissibly non-Christian. Christians assume the Bible has nothing relevant to teach about tax rates, or foreign policy, or education standards, or architecture, or popular music, or movies, or cloning, or surrogate motherhood, so-called, or medical care. These are issues that shouldn't pose big arguments, and everybody should be able to work them out for himself. The only important matters are evangelism and prayer, mostly in the church, and Awana programs and Bethmore Bible studies. (laughs) The upper deck alone is Christian. Everything outside the church need not be Christian and should not be Christian, they think. The world is the lower deck and Christianity is the upper deck. Meanwhile, the lower deck gains its independence from Christianity. Why? Because the bus driver is always on the lower deck. 
The lower deck, already unattached from the Bible and church and Christianity, ignores the upper deck and soon starts driving the entire culture above which the detached upper deck angelically floats, enjoying its helium holiness, while the lower deck drives the vast majority of cultural writers straight to hell. To evacuate Christianity to the upper deck is to destabilize, dilute, and eventually destroy it. It's not merely the case that when Christianity is evacuated upward, its effectiveness is blunted. Rather, it becomes something different from Christianity. Imagine a wealthy sports owner who wanted to start a new baseball league, but to play the game without bases. Well, you'd say, you can create a new game if you want to, but just don't call it baseball. Similarly, a double-decker Christianity that stresses Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in the upper deck of the church and family, but keeps them away from the culture on the lower deck, is not normative Christianity. I told you I was mad. (laughs) It's a diluted and deformed version. Eventually, it will become none at all. This is what's happening as we sit here this afternoon. In conclusion, the problem with successful revolutions is that after a while, you never knew you had one. The problem with successful revolutions is that after a while, you never knew you had one. The West has become so habituated to the political economic and sexual antinomianism of our time that anything else seems abnormal. But it's the current antinomian regime that's abnormal. The objective of biblical Christianity is to gradually replace this antinomian regime with Christian culture by full-orbed gospel preaching, Christian education, mighty prayer, counterpunching against tyrants, and a distinctly Christian approach to every area of life and thought, from education to music to entertainment, to science, to dance, to architecture, to technology, to journalism, to politics, on down the line. Double-decker Christianity is no match for the antinomian regime driving the cultural bus. You won't defeat this massive, all-embracing regime around us by reading warm Christian poems and holding hands and singing, I saw the light on the upper deck. Only a vigorous, comprehensive, aggressive, robust, biblical faith will conquer the antinomian regime that pervades our culture. Christians, again, again need to get down from the upper deck and start driving the bus. Thank you very much.